Welcome to Nanny Og's Book Club, a Discworld podcast. Join us as we read through all 41 of the fantastical and outrageous Discworld novels. I'm Tessa. And I'm Nigel. This is episode 27, The Last Hero. Nigel, it's been a while since I've seen you. Yeah, (laughs) it's been a hot minute. It's been a moment. You got a new job. I was like trying to wrap up the end of the semester, which is done now. Thank God. All right. Are you ready to talk about The Last Hero? I am. I was so proud of myself because I was like, I'm going to get this done because I usually end up like finishing the book like the the evening before we record. And so this one, I was like, mm. I, that's not going to happen this time. I'm going to measure out the pages. I'm going to read a number of pages every day. I'm going to get it done on time. And I did. But then our lives intervened and we couldn't actually record when we wanted to record. So I was like, the one time, the one time that I'm ahead. Yeah. <laughs> like, the universe steps in and was like, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> that'll show me to to have initiative that'll show me to combat my adhd with logic uh executive dysfunction who <laughs> all right uh, the last hero was published in 2001 it is the first fully illustrated discworld novel as has been pointed out by some of our listeners there is a illustrated version of eric but it was published after this um so it was like a re-release of eric so this is the first one The subtitle calls it a Discworld fable, and I definitely want to talk about the word fable and if we think that actually applies to this book, but it's really more of a novella length. It's much shorter than a lot of the Discworld books that we have read so far. It works more as- so this episode will be five hours long discussing it. (laughs) In true Nanny Og's book club fashion, this will be several hours longer than our ones on the novels. I didn't know this because I mentioned that Thief of Time was the last book- that Josh Kirby illustrated. And I said I didn't know why, but I found out, sadly, Josh Kirby died in 2001. And that's why it was the last book that he had illustrated. So Paul Kidby took over as the primary illustrator of the Discworld novels. This was his first one that he had done. And obviously, it's one of the most extensive ones since so many illustrations were required for this. But he did a lot Mm. of other illustrations for Discworld, including like illustrated Discworld books and like the the maps and all of that stuff for some of the ancillary Discworld documents. I also wanted to note that although Rincewind is a big character in this book, and I had mentioned to you that The Last Continent was not the last time we were going to see Rincewind, and I was specifically thinking about this book, I don't think many people, myself included, consider it to be part of the Rincewind branch of the series, mainly because it relies on such a large ensemble cast. And the main character, if there is one, appears to be Cohen the Barbarian. So we could say this is like a Cohen book, or we could say it's like Discworld Avengers style book, which I also definitely think we'll be talking a lot about. And so that's why I kind of put it on its own. Like, it's sort of attached to a lot of different Discworld threads. But Cohen the Barbarian Mm. is obviously the central character. uh, And the Silver Horde is obviously the, the center of this book. But before we get into that, brief summary. Lord Vetinari receives troubling news from the Agitian Empire. Their emperor, Cohen the Barbarian, has abandoned his throne in a mission to, quote, bring fire back to the gods. 
Faced with the world-ending consequences of the Silver Horde blowing up Cori Celesti and disrupting the disc's magical field, Vetinari recruits a team of Discworld's finest, including Rincewind the Wizard, Captain Carrot, Leonard of Querm, and the Librarian, although he doesn't necessarily recruit the Librarian, to stop the Discworld's last hero. Nigel, what were your first thoughts of this Discworld fable? In many ways, this was the Discworld book I had been waiting for. And I did have that thought that this was like the Avengers moment where someone other than Joss Whedon would be directing it, obviously, for for many reasons. But, you know, you had all these threads. Um, and I think it's something that we'll get into later on. But yeah, I definitely had this feeling of like, other than the fact that I thought this was a really good book, that it was something that I had been waiting for in terms of like emotional payoff and plot beats and stuff for a while. You had actually mentioned in several episodes that you were like, oh, I like how the- some of these characters will like guest star in each other's stuff, but it would be really cool if there was like an Avengers style narrative. And I kept thinking of The Last Hero. Every time you said that, I was like, just wait, like we're going to get to The Last Hero. It's going to be great. Because, yeah, I do really feel like this is a book that really leans into that shared universe. We've talked about how Terry Pratchett has, in a lot of ways, developed a universe that is a shared universe or a shared world, I should say. It's not even a universe. It is a world. But it feels very natural. It doesn't feel very contrived in some of the ways that maybe the MCU does or the DCEU. And... This feels like the most comic booky type of story from Terry Pratchett, especially because it is illustrated. And I want to talk about Paul Kidby's wonderful il- illustrations here in a bit. But it does feel the most like watching an MCU movie. We have that Nari, right, who's sort of masterminding this whole thing. We have Cohen the Barbarian from the, di- uh, from the Rincewind books. We have Rincewind himself. We have Leonard of Quirm, who takes a very large role in this book, more than we've seen in previous books. We have Captain Carrot, right, as a, as a main character. You know, we have the librarian, who I guess is probably in most of the Discworld books, so that's the least surprising thing. So we have all of these different people, and there's all of these different references in the book. Like, there's so many that I didn't even, I don't think I got the first time that I read it, where they talk about other characters from other books or other things that have happened, especially because we've never seen most of these characters interact with each other before. And I think you're right. This could have played in a very forced way. It could have played very kitschy, right? Like, oh, like, what if Captain Carrot and Rincewind were in the same book? What would they say to each other? You know, like, and there is a little bit of that, but I think it's done in the best possible way because, like you said, All of these characters are still challenging each other to grow, and they're all still grappling with those themes that have been in their own books all along. And so it doesn't feel like this is an interruption. It feels like it's a natural outgrowth of things that have come before. And that was something that I've said in multiple episodes, how strangely divorced Rincewind feels from all the other characters, especially because Unseen University has featured in a lot of stories, especially since Ridcully was appointed Chancellor. You kept you kept very stum about the fact that Rinson would be like... Because when you said, oh, that he'll... It's not the last we'll see of him again, I figured that he would still be in that weird sort of void 
I never anticipated that, you know, that he would show up. Like, the way he's introduced in the book is just like he walks in. It's like the, the wizard known as Rinswind lurched into the room, white-faced, and stopped in front of the table. <laughs> I do not wish to volunteer for this mission, he said. <laughs> I love that part. That's actually one of the things I had as the funniest moments in the book, where he's like, I do not wish to volunteer for this. But hold on, I have to sit, read the rest of it because it's so funny. Oh, but they, I have this part highlighted as well. Oh, but they will, sir, they will. Someone will say, hey, that Rinswin fella, he's the adventurous sort. He knows the Horde. Cohen seems to like him. He knows all there is to know about cruel and unusual geography. He'd be just the job for something like this. He sighed. And then I'll run away and probably hide in a crate somewhere that'll be loaded onto the flying machine in any case. Will you? Probably, sir. Or there'll be a whole string of accidents that end up causing the same thing. Trust me, sir, I know how my life works. So I thought I'd better cut through the whole tedious business and come along and tell you I don't wish to volunteer. I think you've left out a logical step somewhere, said the patrician. No, sir. It's very simple. I'm volunteering. I just don't wish to. But after all, when did that have anything to do with anything? <laughs> uh, yeah. it's just It feels like such a good encapsulation of Rincewind's life. It's almost meta. It's like very, very close to being meta where he's almost saying, I know how this narrative works right i know how this is gonna go and i don't want to be part of it but i accept that i'm going to be yeah and in many ways it feels like the emotional payoff and conclusion to rinswin's arc that we didn't necessarily get at the end of the last continent or interesting times because it feels very much like how he was in sorcery like there was this similar sort of moment where he's like, well, I don't want to be part of this, but events are going to take me or are going to like draw me in no matter how I do. But I feel like he's more at peace. It feels like we've gotten some form of emotional catharsis happen for Rincewind, even if ne even if it hasn't necessarily happened on the page. But it's like it feels like it has happened, which is good because like I don't want a character that I feel strongly about in the first half of his appearances to just like not have any kind of like resolution to his character arc there's two things that i wanted to bring out of this interaction actually and i wonder first of all if part of this is because he's finally had a fucking break like he, that character has been like go 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 since sorcery right like he got drawn into the dungeon dimension he's been run you know he went through this huge trauma there for however long time works there he was pulled out by eric he was dropped off in the Agitean Empire. He was dropped off in, in 4X. Like, he has not had a break. He has constantly been running. You know, in 4X, he was out in the wilderness for so long, you know? And, you know, now he's back at the Unseen University. He's the unpaid professor of cruel and unusual geography. He's taken that role in the university, which I think is hilarious because if anyone deserves it, it is Rincewind. <laughs> and uh, although I wish he was paid. But of course, yeah. he's not, you know, like, I think maybe having a break and maybe having time to reflect on everything that happened, because it's really hard to have introspection about things that are happening to you in the moment. You're kind of reacting, right? Instead of thinking about it. And so I wonder if just that break has caused him to be able to have that emotional distance to kind of like, okay, like, let's process through all of these things. Yeah, it feels nearly like a period of convalescing after, like, someone coming back from war. I don't know, I'm viewing it kind of in the way that, like, Tolkien 
used The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings to talk about people returning from World War One and World War Two. Yeah, this is his, like, going back after this, the Shire has been scoured. Yeah, absolutely. And so there is a little bit of that, although I would still say that a lot of what Rincewind does in this book is still, it is still reacting. <laughs> and it yeah. is still um, very, almost, not nihilistic, but it's very, like, resigned. Resigned is probably the best word for it, because he understands his place in the universe now, he's accepted it, but it doesn't mean he has to like it. Right. And so, you know, that there is a lot of that in this book, too. But I think it works mm. better in this book than it did in The Last Continent because he's accepted it. He's not trying to fight it anymore like he was. And so it doesn't feel like a series of accidents like in 4X. It feels more like this is just what's going to happen. And I'm along for the journey and I don't have to like it. But here I am. And so that makes what happens in this book a little bit more meaningful, I think, than what happens in the last continent. I think there is a sense in which this book is supposed to wrap up the sword and sorcery line of the Discworld. We talked a lot in the last couple episodes about how Pratchett seems to be moving on in terms of what the Discworld is. He's more interested in a lot of these new characters. He's more interested in the steampunk stuff, the technology stuff, the political stuff than he was in the early Discworld. But this seems like his way of saying goodbye to that aspect of that, of the Discworld, by wrapping up Cohen's storyline especially. But it also mm. seems to be paying off a lot of the things that got introduced in Color of Magic and that have sort of been in those the Rincewind books for a long time. You know, you get the gods on Cory Celesti, you get fate, you get the lady, you know, like all of these people have been playing games with Rincewind and with the characters in the sword and sorcery. Cohen obviously also comes from that tradition of sword and sorcery. So there's a lot there as well that's getting paid off. But before we get into all of that, the conversations between Rincewind and Vetinari. We have talked a lot about how the veterinary of The Color of Magic is not the same character as the veterinary that is, has become your comfort character, Nigel. Yeah, nor is the Rincewind of Color of Magic. That's true, but Rincewind has grown out of that character. Veterinary, it just seems like, became a different character. What do you think about the interactions between those two characters now versus the interactions we saw between them in Color of Magic? Well, now, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm trying to remember this. All of the interaction was literally just Veterinary showing, uh, getting Rinston to his his house and then threatening him. And that was it, right? There wasn't a, a second one? I believe that's right. It was more like, you're going to take Two Flower around and show him a good time. You're going to protect yeah. him. You're going to protect him or else. It, I, I don't know. I think it comes back to that whole idea of paying things off where there's like, like Rincewind has gone through so much trauma to get to this point and to the person he is now. But in that same time, Sam Vimes has also reinstated the watch. And I think that's had a profound effect on veterinary. And I don't know. I, f I thought I could feel little bits of that, that like they're subtly different people, you know, like there's a lot talking about like, and I know you said you wanted to, talk about what whether this like agrees with it being a fable or not 
But like, there is、yeah. a lot about like stories and mythology and mythologizing people, especially with the the Silver Horde. You know, there's a lot about how things have changed, and this is something that was like you know in Trollbridge and things like that. And these characters, I, I think like the last hero is, among other things, a full book where Terry Pratchett can go where these characters aren't static. That's what I took most out of them because, like, there's not really any sort of bitterness on Rincewind's part. He's not really like holding a grudge for、um, Veterinary threatening him and sending him off on the mission. I think it's very much just like an acknowledgement that like these characters have grown, and it's you know it's taken twenty six, twenty seven books, but like it's happened. And the book doesn't really get into this, but it does make me wonder. So Rincewind is back, right? He was sent on this journey by Veterinary. Neither he nor Vetnari, I think, knew how long or complex of a journey it was going to be. But it does make me wonder what Rincewind thinks of Ankh-Morpork now, because it is a very different Ankh-Morpork than the one he left, right, in Color of Magic. And so when we get to the last hero, and he's been living here for I don't know how many years at this point. If it's been a year, if it's been a couple years, or whatever, since the events of the Last Continent, I, I wonder. How Rincewind feels about it now that he's back, and you have the Watch, and you have the Sephamore Towers, and you have the the more diverse, you know, cityscape of Ankh-Morpork.、Mm. You know, I, it's not something the book gets into, but I would be very curious to know his thoughts on it. We got a bit of that in interesting times when he's first transported to Ankh-Morpork, and he's running around and can't like really believe, and it's terrified by everything. He's looking for the potato. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but since then, there has been like so much social and like technological change,、uh, and、uh, yeah, it's like you said that Pratchett is moving away from sword and sorcery and into you know what we've remarked on a lot of the times that it's becoming more kind of steampunk and modern, and I think that's also like a good way of doing that is acknowledging that like. The characters that were sword and sorcery starting off are now not. Before we talk about the kite, let's talk about Cohen and the Silver Horde. So you brought up the idea that this is a continuation of some of the themes from Trollbridge, which I absolutely agree with. I think some of those themes from Trollbridge are almost being brought to fruition. Can I put my English like degree hat on?、Um, like, of well, a graduation cap now. Like I think this is, in part, like a really similar sort of storyline to archetypical texts like Beowulf. You know, like Beowulf, he goes and he does all these things, and he kills Grendel, and then he kills Grendel's mother for good measure, and then he reigns for fifty years as king of the Hayats. I think is the name of it, or maybe that's the people he saves. I don't know. But then when he's an old man. Beowulf goes out to slay a dragon, and he kills the dragon, but he dies in the process. And obviously, like Beowulf is an archetypical warrior, but also then like the person, one of the people that Cohen the Barbarian is styled on is Genghis Khan. You know who had that kind of thing where, like Alexander, after he died, there was this weird like question of legacy and this giant empire then that he had left got.、Um, Divided up into, you know, these warring factions, and that unity was lost. And it's kind of the same thing where he just gave up the Ajatian Empire. But like, 
There's a quote that really struck me, which was that like, after you've had everything, all that's left is nothing. And it's like this weird search for meaning that like, you know, he's lived this like incredible life and he's way past his prime and somehow he still hasn't died. You know, even if people who he's really close to die like in interesting times, he's still there for some reason. Narratively, in the tradition of all these old stories, and this is perhaps lending itself to calling it a fable, like he has to do something to go big or go home. And in this case, it's bringing fire back to the gut, which I think is such a funny idea. You know, like the the stealing fire from the gods thing, which is in like loads of different myths and like, you know, the most famous one, probably Prometheus giving fire to mortals, uh, just bringing it back and it's, it's explosives. Yeah, uh, well, and Prometheus is sort of in this, right? The he, mm. I don't think he's actually called Prometheus in this, but he, he's the guy strapped to the rock with the eagle coming to eat his liver every day, right? That was the punishment that the that the Greek gods gave Prometheus yeah. for stealing fire from them. And I love that Cohen arms him. Yeah. <laughs> so he can, like, kill the eagle, which is great. Wasn't the reason for that that he, like, thought that it was sort of an unjust punishment to have, like, this eagle constantly come every day and attack? Yeah. Pseudo-Prometheus, I guess. Oh, no, just, like, that's the whole thing about the Greek gods, which I guess some of the Discworld gods are based on. Um, You know, like, I- Blind Io seems to be very, like, Jupiter-Zeus-aligned. Right. Like, it's that they're just weirdly cruel and capricious, and I think it's important that, like, someone like Cohen, who has lived such a life and has been such a hero, thinks that, like, you know, what they do is profoundly unjust and wants to rectify that. And I think there is this sense that he's angry. He's angry about his life because he realizes at the end of it that the gods have been playing games with them their whole the whole time right and a lot of his adventures are manipulative right they've manipulated him into being this person into being this hero into doing these things and and you know seeing all these this death and fighting in these armies and so on and we even find out later that the whole thing about the fire like returning the fire to the gods or whatever is sort of part of the game right it is like this like they left the gods left these like invitations basically for him and evil harry dread as a as a name evil harry dread yeah absolutely and i want to talk about evil harry dread but there is this moment um it's on page 47 of my book and i assume that everyone has the same page numbers for this because I don't know. Do you, is there a digital copy of The Last Hero? I think it's all physical. I have a digital one, but it got rid of all the illustrations. Oh, so there's this there's this scene where the minstrel, who is never named, is asking them why, <laughs> why they're doing this. Because we've seen a lot of old friends die, said Caleb. That's right, said Boy Willie. And we never saw no big women on flying horses come and take them to the halls of heroes. When old Vincent died, him being one of us, said Boy Willie, where was the Bridge of Frost to take him to the Feast of the Gods, eh? No, they got him. They let him get soft with comfy beds and someone to chew his food for him. They nearly got us all. Ha, milky drinks, spat Truckle. What? said Hamish, waking up. He asked why we want to return fire to the gods, Hamish. 
eh? Because someone's got to do it, cackled Hamish. Because it's a big world and we ain't seen it all yet, said Boy Willie. Because the buggers are immortal, said Caleb. Because of the way my back aches on chilly nights, said Truckle. The minstrel looked at Cohen, who was staring at the ground. Because, said Cohen, because they've let us grow old. I think that that is a very interesting way to put it, because this goes back to Trollbridge, right? Like, what happens when you've survived everything and the world is different? You saved it, but it's, you didn't save it for yourself. You saved it for other people. And so there is this sense that Cohen did save the world. He remade the world in a lot of ways. Um, It's no longer the same world that he grew up in that he was fighting to save. But then the gods allowed him to survive into that world. And that's almost more cruel than letting him die. Yeah. And it gets gets to raising sort of interesting questions about... You know, like how old people really should live. Not, in, and I'm not saying that in a weird euthanasia, um, eugenics way. It's like for ages, loads of people wouldn't have made it past fifty. You know, throughout history, and now that as we're going, we're, you know, we're living healthily and whatever, and so we're living much, much longer. But our bodies aren't really used to living that long. So there's one other scene I wanted to bring up, too, that kind of brings up this animosity that Cohen has to the gods, right? Because he blames them for this. Like, you told us that this is what a hero was and that this is what we were going to get, you know, out of when we did all these things. And if we did it all right, this is what we're going to get. And instead, you let us grow old and we didn't get those things. There's this really great uh, moment at the end, too. And this is part of, like, Cohen is inspired by the minstrel story of the Sortian Knot, right? Which is based on the Gordian Knot from um, Alexander the Great, the the sort of mythology of Alexander the Great. So they're playing dice with the gods. There's that million to one chance thing again, right? Which I I would love to also go back to. But he he chops the dice in half, right? Um, So they have a, a six. He says, I think we had a deal, said Cohen, still holding his sword. Really? And have you heard the saying, you cannot cheat fate, said fate? Mad Hamish rose in his wheelchair. Have you heard the saying, can your mother stitch, pal? He yelled. As one man, or God, the silver horde closed up and drew its weaponry. No fighting, shouted blind Io. That's the rule here. We've got the world to fight in. That wasn't cheating, Cohen growled. Leaving scrolls around to lure heroes to their deaths. That's cheating. But where would heroes be without magic maps, said blind Io. Many of them would still be alive, snapped Cohen. Not pieces in some damn game. You cut the thing in half, said Fate. Show me where it says that in the rules. Yeah, why not show me the rules, eh? Said Cohen, dancing with rage. Show me all the rules. What's up, Mr. Fate? You want to know to go, is it? Double or quits? Double stakes? And the, the idea of, like, show me the rules. Like, I have been playing this game my whole life, or you've been playing this game with me my whole life, but I don't even know what the rules are. Yeah, it's this weird, like... Kafka-esque sort of like you would nearly imagine like like, like the trial where you know you put on trial but no one will tell you what you're accused of where it's like you're living your your life by the rules of this game no one has cared enough to tell you you know what you're meant to be doing that idea that um leaving the scrolls around for heroes to like find and then die is what's unfair what's cheating 
Yeah, because from Cohen's perspective, and, and this goes back because Io's like, we don't fight here. We fight in the world. We fight by proxy with, you know, all these heroes and people, which we've seen throughout the disc world, right? The gods fight by proxy. You know, we've seen this in small gods. We saw it in uh, sorcery. We saw it in color of magic. You know, we saw it in the light fantastic. This is constantly what they're doing. This is their MO. And I love that Cohen is like, the problem with this is that we're not pieces, right? We're, yeah. We are people who can die and who often die in these games. And from our perspective, this is unusually cruel. But it's interesting then how Rincewind tries to talk down Cohen to like get him to stand down. And because like, this is another moment that just puts me in mind of sorcery, you know, where he's the only person to step up and and, and speak for the sake of coin. But, he, you know, no one will remember who you were or what you did, he went on. There would be nothing, no more songs, no one will remember. Yes, it's, it's unfair and cruel that they've been made live this long, but... Or is it Carrot that says that? I'm not sure. I don't remember, but yeah, like it's cruel and unusual that they've been let live this long, but they like at this stage, they are their, their own myths for better or worse, even though they've gone past the point of like physically being that that's all they're left with. And then to go ahead and like blow up all the bombs and destroy the gods, uh, like that's left and they're effectively nothing. It's actually the minstrel who says that. The, the Yeah, no one will remember who you were, what you did, he went on. There will be nothing, no more songs, no one will remember. Oh. Because it, it, it turns out that the whole mission of the kite didn't really matter. <laughs> I mean, like, it did, but, like, they, they come to this conclusion uh, kind of on their own um, with just a little bit of outside help. I did want to point out that, like, in... A lot of the earlier Discworld books, when they depicted the gods playing games, right, it is usually the usual combo or the people that we're supposed to be most interested in are the games between fate and the lady, right? Mm. Because they're supposed to be diametrically opposed to each other. And the lady has always favored Rincewind, whereas the fate has always favored anything that's against Rincewind. And so we once again get these two at the table while Cohen is also at the table. And if we were following the pattern of previous books, we would be happy that fate gets defeated. And then we would see that the lady is actually on Cohen's side, right? That she um, is sort of the patron of Cohen. But when she introduces herself to Cohen and she says, I am the million to one chance, Cohen is just like, no, you're part of this too. Like, you mm. you don't get off because you champion the heroes, right? Uh, oh, is that not what I was supposed to say, said Cohen? I was supposed to say, oh, Tom, this is much obliged. Well, I ain't. They say fortune favors the brave, but I say I've seen too many brave men walking into battles they never walked out of. Like, so there is this idea that he is so angry. And I like that he doesn't, that T- Pratchett doesn't let the lady off the hook. Just because yeah. she's the person that we've been identifying with um, for most of the Rincewind series doesn't mean that she's not still playing the game. Yeah, because, like, yes, she champions the heroes, but if they weren't 
If the gods weren't using people as pieces, then there would be no reason for her to champion them. And this is something that's like very Vimes in a way. Like that's the reason why Vimes is mad at so much of the establishment is because they're treating people like objects. This is that exact same thing, but like on a much larger scale. This is a much, much bigger crime than Vimes could ever conceive of really. One of the big crimes. Yeah, and it actually the also goes back crime. to Granny Weatherwax, right? Because Granny says in Carpe Juggalum, sin is treating people as things. That's where it yeah. starts. Cohen tries to engineer his own mythology by bringing this minstrel, kidnapping this minstrel and bringing him along. And mm. throughout the journey, they not only have to convince the minstrel of what they're doing, but they also sort of have to teach him how a saga works because sagas have gone out of style. So this minstrel doesn't actually know like the genre of what a saga is. And so you get all the silver holds hordes saying, Oh no, no, no. Like this is what it is. This is the kind of language you have to use. Here's the structure. Here's what like generally has to happen. I mean, first off, I want to say that it, it's such like our flag means death vibes. Like, <laughs> this minstrel <laughs> yes. is Lucius. I think it's a fascinating concept, you know? Like, on the one hand, like, you have this kind of, like, historic thing, like the saga, and that's how, like, it. you know, it's fairly similar to things like, I don't know, like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, where it was just this big record of everything that would happen in a year and the next year and blah, blah, blah. And that's gone out of style now. And like nowadays, because people are so in the public eye that they're, you know, like, and through their phones, this is what people are doing is that they're curating their legacy and their own saga through how they're perceived. The amount of celebrities who are like in their 30s and they have autobiographies or biographies put out, you know, about their lives. And it's like, you are 30. And yes, you've sold like mm -hmm. a couple million records, but like you haven't lived a full life. So you're right. trying to like get, get people to view you in a certain way. In terms of a warrior horde, that's very fascinating because it's like an awful lot of the time warrior hordes are like they're looting and pillaging. And it feels like a like a a weird PR thing where they're trying to like get a handle on just in case anything bad might happen. It's a workplace comedy. It is a workplace comedy. Uh, so two things. One, and this goes back to Interesting Times, because I don't know if you remember our conversation about the Silver Horde in Interesting Times when they were introduced, but I think it's, is it Caleb who makes a few rape jokes? And we were both like, ugh, yeah. no, don't do that. There is sort of a attempt, I think, to address that in this book, or at least like, clarify it because there's this moment in the beginning where veterinary says the words we might use are murder pillage theft and rape have i understood the situation not rape i believe said mr betteridge finding a rock on which he could stand not in the case of cohen the barbarian ravishing possibly is there a difference it's more a matter of approach i understand said the historian i don't believe there were any actual complaints and so, like, I think that that's a very interesting thing to sort of drop in in this book. And it's a very small moment. But this idea that Pratchett's almost saying, whoa, what I meant by that 
was like this idea of like that they got around right like that yeah. they that when they invaded like they you know ravishing a little different you know in terms of like consent there were no actual complaints that doesn't make it better what happens in interesting times to me anyway but it is an interesting clarification that Pratchett's trying to make here yeah, because like like it like veterinary understands it in the same way that like we understand that the terms like rape and pillage is something which is associated with pirates, but then we'll also gladly watch pirate media and kind of like well, like it's not in that and yeah, like Jack Sparrow, let's say you know might get around, but there was no you know like Pratchett says there was no complaints made. Right, it's kind of like watching pirate media and being like oh, Blackbeard could ravish me. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's kind of like that kind of attitude oh, so of just hot. like, I know. But yeah, you, you know what I mean? Like, that's the difference between the two is that it's kind of like, oh, like, yeah, we can call it ravishing or whatever, but it is consensual at the end of the day. Yeah, and that's not even bringing in like CNC stuff. Uh, like, if that's what you're into, that's right. also fine. But also like, Veterinary himself isn't, outside of prejudice you know like where he makes mm-hmm. a couple things where he says like about the librarian that they could chop him up and feed him to the the drakes or to the right. dragons yeah and he's like i get uh, he instantly realizes like when everyone goes cold or he's like i get the feeling i've not brought my audience with me what did you think about what essentially ends up being a conversation about genre between the minstrel and the horde because again the horde is living in a time where the saga is the primary marker of respect right if you're a good enough hero if you do good enough deeds you get a saga written about you the minstrel is living in this new time where that's not how it works the songs that he writes are more like, they're more of the romantic type of songs. They're more about, like, nature and, you know, gothic stuff and all of that kind of thing. And so there is this clash of genre that's going on here. And I I don't know. The English person in me thought it was very interesting that a bunch of people who are clearly not literate, for the most part, they're all signing their names with X's, have a very good grasp on what a saga is in terms of genre. I think, like, as well, the English person, me, I'm always fascinated by that. And like you said earlier on about Rinswin, this is, like, approaching being meta. Like, it's not fully there. But I'm always there for, like, when narratives kind of address the fact that they're doing something and that they're consciously playing with this thing. I don't know. It kind of lends itself to that sadness and anger at the start, where it's, like, the world has moved on from Cohen and the Silver Horde, but not only that, like, the way in which they're talked about is no longer around. It, it just reminds me of when, when I did this module called What is Literature in Third Year? And we had to argue that, like, different things. So we were, we got taught for the first half of the semester, and then we had to, like, split into groups and argue that, like, literature was, politics was one group, literature was art literature is pleasure literature is identity and that's what i think like this is because like like a genre of a thing is the identity of the piece the specific conventions of a saga is the identity of it and it's so tied to a person or group of people that like it's essentially like 
their fingerprint or their DNA or whatever. Because, like, there's that scene where the minstrel says, I wouldn't know how to compose a saga. We'll help, said Truckle. We know lots, said Boy Willie. Ben in most of them, said Cohen. So, yeah, I, I think that their identity is very much tied with the saga. They're not getting the things that the gods promised them, but they have their sagas. It's like a conscious act of resurrection. The other thing that I loved, uh, it's right there, is uh, the comments that Cohen sort of makes on patronage in this. You got art oh, and yeah. we got rubies. We give you rubies and you give us art. <laughs> That reminds me of like a thought I had recently about the story of the Pied Piper of Hamlin. And the moral of the story of the Pied Piper is pay creatives what you owe them or else. <laughs> hey, Cohen understands that. Yeah. <laughs> Cohen is a patron of the arts. He understands that people must be paid. What did you think, though, about the minstrel leaving the rubies at the end? I thought that was very sweet. The Silver Horde, it's unclear whether they are dead, right? They steal the yeah. horses from the Valkyries and then they ride off, and it's very much like a like a spaghetti western ride off into the sunset where Clint Eastwood has done the deeds and he may as well be dead, because that's the story the story is over. And I think this is right. like a lot a lot of Cohen's character, not just like the world itself, but what happens once a story is over to the characters in it. And this is a problem that we see with, like, the cursed child. I mean, there's many problems with Harry Potter. But also, like, going back to what you said about Harper Lee with Ghost at a Watchman, where, like, this is something she never wanted published about how Atticus Finch ends up. Mm -hmm. She never intended to publish it. It was basically the beginning of To Kill a Mockingbird. That's how she got To Kill a Mockingbird. She never wanted it to be a sequel or a prequel or whatever. And I think, like, it's a mark of artist. It's, you know, like, it's on a mark of artistic integrity. I think on the minstrel's part, like, that's what I think that moment is, that, like, it's that he's satisfied enough in the work and in doing justice to the story of Cohen and the Silver Horde that he's willing not to take payment. Like, I I don't know about you. Like, do you have a different opinion? I think it's that he's satisfied that he's done something good and that he's memorialized them enough that he uh, doesn't need to take their money. Despite the fact that they kidnapped him and that he thinks that they're insane, right, for like the first part of the book, like many people, and we've seen this before, we saw it in interesting times, especially, he sees something in them. Cohen is very charismatic, right? He is one of those people who will eventually win anyone over if he doesn't kill them. He has the Silver Horde to follow him, but he also just attracts people. And Rincewind even talks about this. He says he has a strange sort of charisma. And I think that the minstrel throughout this slowly begins to understand that what Cohen is doing, although it's old and it's outdated and it belongs to a different world, it's very honest what he's doing. Mm. You know, Cohen even says it doesn't even matter if we succeed. What what matters is that we tried, right? And then the next time someone else will, it makes people think, oh, well, I can try. So what he's doing is destabilizing this belief that the universe should be this way, right? He's trying to destabilize the idea that, well, this is just how it works, and so I think the minstrel who who starts calling himself the singer, right? He says, "Call me the singer." 
at the end, which seems like a very meta reference as well, because when we talk about poetry or we talk about songs, we often talk about how the author is not the same person as the person speaking. And so we call them the speaker, which is a concept that is very difficult to teach, by the way. But it's also like, like evocative of older like theodicies like paradise lost you know sing heavenly muse is how like the invocation that starts or i sing of men in arms from the aeneid right exactly and so i think there's this sense that the minstrel by the end of the book has completely bought into what cohen was trying to do and the whole point of mythologizing it isn't just to pay homage to cohen and to mythologize him, although it certainly does that, it is to continue this mission that Cohen has of challenging the way that the gods on the Discworld conduct business, right? It's this idea of telling people, hey, we almost blew up Corey Celeste. You can also start thinking about how unfair this is. And in some ways, what the singer is doing will probably be more successful than what Cohen did, because there is this sense that art and ideas are often more powerful in terms of reaching a lot of people and convincing them of things than, you know, blowing up something, although that can also be powerful. Yeah. And like, if you're inspired by the actions of a previous revolutionary, I think you should go out there and affect change, listeners. There's currently railroad strikes in America, and I think you should go out and support the people on strike. Yes. Also, there are lots of anti-trans bills that have just been introduced, including one in South Carolina, which is the state that I live in, um, which is very cruel and restrictive and will directly affect my spouse if it is passed. And so, you know, you got it. You got to challenge the order of things. You have to yeah. point out when something is unjust. Yeah, like November the fifth. People celebrate Bonfire Night from November the fifth, and remember, remember the fifth of November. And everyone says that part, but it's re- like it's not really a celebration of Guy Fox. It's this weird like putting down of what he did. Like I feel like this mm-hmm. is the most analogous thing to what Cohen is doing where Cohen is bringing fire back to the gods and Guy Fawkes tried to blow up Parliament. But it's very much like a, well, look, we caught the traitor and we, you know, we tortured him and killed him. But, like, I don't know. Take inspiration from that. I think, like, go out and effect change. If it takes blowing stuff up, I don't know. Yeah. But then this also gets into the ethics of, like, well, fascists stormed the capital on January the 6th. And ideologically blowing up buildings is kind of iffy. Yeah, no, to your point, like this this returns to something we've talked on a lot in the death books, which is like how belief in the gods works in the Discworld. The auditors wanted to get rid of the Hogfather, and so like death had to fill that role or else something weird would happen. You know, like it would be this massive destabilization with all where all of the belief goes, and so then he tricks Hex. Well, not tricks Hex, but he, like, tricks the system by getting Hex to just, like, logically believe in the Hogfather. Right. Or, like, how small gods happens, you know, where, like, people stop believing in in gods and then become the small gods in that weird scene. Or um, even the Maul, you know, in, um, it's not Reaper Man, is it? No. No, it's Reaper Man, the Maul. Oh, yeah, okay, I was like... 
You were you forgot, were right. Yeah, I forgot that that was that was the B plot to that book. Yeah. Because <laughs> like the it doesn't mole, belong like, in that book. That was our argument at the time. I feel like my brain has now entirely divorced it from it. But like like they spread, and then you know people end up going into them and whatever. But also the death that the auditors uh, appoint to take death's place, you know, is a completely different death, but it's filling that same spot. And so, like, it comes back to the argument that, like, if enough people believe in a thing, then it becomes law, or on, like, a larger scale, it becomes mythology. Right. Because I was reading a book recently, Mancom McGann's Listen to the Land Speak. He pointed out something really interesting about Ireland, which I guess, like, I had thought of, but never seen put into words. Which is, like, apart from all of the trauma that has been, like, visited upon our country through, like, you know, 800 years of colonial oppression, 60 years of repression and trauma by the Catholic Church, is that, like, we've never had a clear national identity. And so, like, so much of our history is just mixed in with, like, folklore and mythology. um, And we speak about them in the same breath. And so, like, they're effectively Mm -hmm. our history because, like, enough people believe them uh, and then we never had a chance to, like, disam- disambiguate from them. I do think that there is this sense that Cohen feels betrayed, but it is part of, like, who he is, you know, like, as a person. So it's hard to divorce those two things from each other. What did you think about Evil Harry Dread? As a name, Evil Harry Dread is f- is so funny. It's one. I think it's one of the funniest names that the Discworld has had, like, period. I think Evil Harry Dread is a very interesting character. He's very funny in a lot of ways because he's like a dark lord, right? In the traditional dark lord yeah. sword and sorcery sort of way. But he's also just this little guy who has henchmen. But it goes back to a theme of Trollbridge, right? Because remember in Trollbridge, when he's having the conversation with the troll and they're like, we were probably on opposite sides, but they have like this like kinship, right? Of like knowing what that was like and knowing that they were just it didn't actually matter they were on opposite sides they were treated the same way you know like they were doing the same thing for people like they were the people in the trenches right who were doing the fighting and they didn't even necessarily know why they were fighting right that that was the job of the people who were actually like the kings and so on and so this is this reminds me of this because cohen if he's the hero the last hero and evil Harry Dread is a dark lord. The idea is is that this is all part of the same game, right? This mm. is all evil Harry Dread is just as much a pawn as Cohen is. They're just like on opposite sides, um, and but they end up teaming up here because, well, sort of teaming up uh, because you know they they are in the same boat. This idea that like if there are no more heroes, then what does it matter if there's a dark lord, right? Because Harry's identity is tied up in this oppositional idea of narrative, right? Um, I am a dark lord. I have to have a hero to fight. And even the ways that he talks about the how he conducts his business is very narrative focused, right? I always give my guards helmets that are easy to hide the identity of the hero when he needs to dress up as a as one of my guards. I always have an, a backdoor exit, right? Because the Dark Lord always escapes. You know, there's all of these like I always have really dumb henchmen. Like there's this narrativeness to Evil Harry Dread that he understands that it's a game, right? And he is playing his part. Yeah. It has the like 
it has the the vibes of um like a seasoned character actor he's not necessary or you know someone who's like i can't think of an example but someone who's like played a role for so long that they're like kind of indistinguishable from that role uh and they're like you know i don't know like a literary canon person like if someone played sherlock for ages like basil rathbone or whatever being like oh well you know sherlock would do this or you know sherlock would always have it this way i don't know i can't think of a solid example but it's very funny and i also just think that calling him evil harry dread is the icing on the cake because you may as well call him something like like i don't know gun death punch Facenstein. <laughs> what did you think about the fact that he kept betraying them but they kept expecting him to like everybody sort of knew like okay i'm gonna betray you because i'm a dark lord but you know that so it's not really like i'm actually betraying you <laughs> like yeah <laughs> <laughs> like it's funny but it's also it's three things i guess like it's funny and then it's also like plays into that narrative thing of people fulfilling their roles but it's also kind of sad when you really think about it where it's like like he's doing these things just because he thinks the narrative demands it um and he can't really do anything else yeah but but he survives yeah like he is the only one who survives i mean he's the one at the end with the singer and the reason given is dark lord always survives yeah what did you think of Vina the Raven-haired, who is sort of Cohen's opposite? I don't really have many thoughts about her, if I'm being honest. Like, I was kind of more, I was kind of more like, holy shit, there's like an Avengers-style team-up happening, um, and right. then focusing on Cohen. Like, Vina, I don't know. She's not, she's not a romantic lead, though. Like, we've been yeah. asking these books to give us partnerships that aren't necessarily romantic, between opposite genders and here we go like vena is cohen if cohen was a woman but there's no romance between them they're just partners and to that point like we did also kind of have the with kanina but obviously yes. like there would never be any romantic tension because like you know first of all terry pratchett is not george or martin but no yeah like right. that is refreshing but like outside of that i can't re- like i don't i don't know whether i have any thoughts about vena Fair enough. I just like the idea of a grandmother like like I want her to be like H- Helen Mirren in red. Like I don't know if you've seen that film. Yes. But, yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, that's what I imagined. I was just like that is that character. No, no. Just Helen Mirren is the perfect person to play that in the same way that like I think Nathan Fode is probably the best person to play the singer. Oh, I hadn't thought about that. See, because in my head I was like I was kind of thinking about it and like either the. Mm, whatever the guy who plays uh, Jaskier in The Witcher show is, but I think more so, like, along the lines of Lucius from... Along the lines of Lucius from Our Flag Means that Mainly because of the, like... Spends a large part of the story thinking all the people around him are insane. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and that is basically what's happening here. There is a reference to Konina. I don't have the exact page number. She doesn't. He doesn't call her by name, but Cohen says he has a lot of kids. And that he hopes that they're, you know, all all right. He's like, I picked really strong mothers for them, which kind of like, on the one hand, it kind of makes me feel like Cohen is a deadbeat dad. The fact that he just like has kids and leaves them alone. But we know that he was sort of involved in Konina's life because he taught her 
everything that she knows. But he does say he does say a lot of them have turned out all right. Like they have been like they're good. And so I think that's supposed to be sort of a reference to Konina. Yeah, because on one hand, like, I think, <laughs> like, you have to wonder how many times Terry Pratchett, like, sits down, w- like, sat down to write a book and was, like, realized the characters that he had forgotten, you know, had introduced and was like, this is a fairly big character and then did nothing else with, like, Kanina or Esk, how Two Flower just, like, says goodbye at the end of the life, fantastic, and then we don't see him until interesting times. Right. But then also, I like the implication that, like, we know that um, Kanina was taught everything about warfare by Cohen, but there's no like direct inference that the rest of Cohen's kids are warriors. That they could be like normal people, and he's happy about that. That they they're not being drawn into these games. Yeah, and I I wonder if that is what he's doing because there is this sense that he's a hero and he needs to wander, you know. And I I don't know how much access he's had to birth control, so you know it's like. A lot of these kids are probably not kids that he planned on having. But, like, the idea that he's attracted to strong women, he's like, you know, their mothers would take care of them. Like, I trust all of the people that I've had kids with to take care of them. And maybe there is this sense that he hopes that they won't get drawn into his life, right? That they should live in this world that no longer fits him, but should fit them. So that that does make sense. I have two other things I want to bring up about Cohen and uh, this storyline before we switch over to the other storyline of the book. One is the Silver Horde. We've talked a lot about Cohen, but we haven't talked a lot about the Silver Horde. How do you feel about the Silver Horde in this book? You loved them in interesting times. How do you feel about them in this book? I still I still quite like them. Um, and there's less of the like weird leery sexism of the 80s and 90s in them mm-hmm. which I, i'm i'm grateful for they're grieving because old vincent who was in interesting times has died he uh, yeah. choked on a concubine i mean cucumber <laughs> um hmm. so yeah that's what i was about to say i was about to say i think like the, the fact that they're grieving was something like that we haven't really seen them do as a group like at the end of interesting times yeah sure there's sadness like i think it feeds in to especially like the motive behind Cohen's trying to bring fire back to the gods. And also just whenever Terry Pratchett has a collection of elderly characters in the same room together, there's <laughs> always some like top-notch banter. Yes, absolutely. And reminiscing, right? Because they've all played this role for so long, they get to talk about narrative convention and like the things that they've been through. Hamish is still my favorite. Our, our disabled elderly character who everyone has to keep shouting at. But I love that they're always helping him with his wheelchair. Like, it's an accessibility device. It's not stopping him from coming on the on the mission. And mm. so uh, they, you know, they bring him along. Um, and I also loved that we find out that at one point, Hamish was married to an evil queen, which, can we just get a book with about Hamish's youth? I would read that. Like, I just want, like, to know everything about Hamish. Yeah. <laughs> like, this guy got around, apparently. There's so many characters in the Discworld where, you, where, where you're like, whoa, 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 stop a second, just, like, pause, tell me everything. 
Yeah. <laughs> Tell me everything about Hamish. But the joke that they're always talking and then you just suddenly hear from the from the pile of blankets on the wheelchair, what? And then they have to like shout whatever it is at him. It's just perfect. I love him so much. Okay. And then the last thing I wanted to mention before we switch over to the the other the other storyline is this reoccurring image of Alexander, um, which they use Tacticus. So Tacticus shows back up, right? He's the he's the general that Vimes has been reading um, that we love, you know, his like straightforward, no nonsense type of military strategy. But here he gets identified with Alexander very clearly, um, one through the Sortian Knot story, right, which is Basically the exact same as the Gordian Knot, right? Our end of show checklist for references to source. Yes, absolutely. And Cohen is prepared to sneer at him until he finds out about the fact that Tacticus just sliced the knot in two. And then he's like, oh, oh, this is someone I could have gotten along with. And then the story about Tacticus conquering the disc and then crying because there were no more worlds to conquer. Um, which is something that Cohen also identifies with, even though he kind of makes fun of Tacticus a little bit. What did you think about this identification and the way that Terry Pratchett is sort of teasing out the legacy of Alexander and aligning Cohen with Alexander? We've talked about Genghis Khan, but we haven't talked as much about Alexander. I mean, that's a really interesting one because, yeah, like I said, there's a lot of parallels between them creating like vast empires and taking over so much of the the planet and uh, you know being dominion over that and then dying and there being like no one who can really fill that void so you know falls to division and states that are separate to one another but it's also like the idea that uh Alexander the Great wept because there were no more worlds left to conquer is something which is so profound because of how like out of touch it is with like the rest of what we consider to be a military leader especially back in those times because like now we have the idea of a military leader is someone like the president of america or putin or xi jinping in china or whatever you know it's a very specific like it's the head of state who is also the head of the army conceptions of that back in in ancient times were completely different and it was very much like a noble upstanding man because also julius caesar when he was in egypt found a statue of alexander and then julius caesar cried because like he was like look at all the things alexander did before he was the age i am and i've done comparatively nothing and so then i think that's especially an interesting through line when you have cohen identifying with alexander again that quote when you've had everything all that's left is nothing it's like what do you do at the end of your story when you reach the when you reach the edge of the world and it's all yours like where else do you go well you go to cory celeste obviously absolutely and i i think that it really works with alexander because if you studied him as a person alexander the great was raised to be this person if you could manufacture a per- the perfect military leader slash warrior in a lab, that is basically what his parents did. Philip of Macedonia hired Spartan warriors to teach him strategy and combat. He hired Aristotle to teach him philosophy 
and uh, critical thinking. And his mother, Alexander's mother, was a priestess of Poseidon and told him he was a god, like told like engineered this sense that he was like destined for greatness and then both of those people took him spun him around and said go at the world right they manufactured him an army and so you know there is this sense that alexander throughout his life as far as we can tell his purpose was to conquer right his purpose the part he was supposed to play in world politics, and I think he genuinely believed this, was to conquer the world, was to wage war. It was to unite, um, you know, all the places that he that he knew of, right? And he was so fucking good at it, right? Like, he was invincible in a lot mm. of ways. But the, the, the problem with that is, is that what happens when you get to the end of that story, right? And I think what you said about once you have everything... There's nothing, right? And so the idea is that he wept because his purpose was complete. So now what does he do? Well, he dies, right? At the age of 30. So we don't actually know like what kind of ruler he would have been or anything like that. Cohen didn't die at the age of 30. And so there is this sense that Cohen has reached that point, right? This was my purpose. And now I'm starting to question that purpose. If this is my narrative goal, if all I'm supposed to be is this game piece for the gods, then that makes me incredibly angry because there's nothing else for me to do. And yet I haven't died, right? I They've let us grow old. Have you read or seen I, Claudius, Tessa? I have not. I would recommend it, but, like, I think it's interesting on that as well, like, to return to Caesar as someone who's, like, similar to Alexander. Like, Caesar achieved so much in the, like, unification of Rome and turning it from a kingdom into a dictatorship, which would eventually become the Roman Empire. Like Alexander, we never really got to see what he would be as a ruler, like, in the long run, because, like, but what's important about like Caesar dying isn't that he was stabbed on the Idis of March, it's that he was stabbed by people he considered to be his friends. Then I Claudius was this book that was written by Robert Graves, which like I mean, I feel the need to like acknowledge that it was like not entirely based off of historical record. He took an awful lot of like gossip that people had said in Roman times about the emperors and especially people like Livia. Um, and put it into this book, but then it was made into a BBC miniseries from the, like, 60s, um, and it has, like, Patrick Stewart and John Hurst and uh, loads You're of... I really recommend this. it. Yeah. It's fascinating TV, but it's narrated by um, Claudius, who is, like, the fourth emperor or whatever, and it's really interesting to see because he's the one who gets to grow old because you've had, like, this sort of mm-hmm. bombastic bombastic change-filled emperorship of augustus you know who famously said or is supposed to have said that he found roman clay and left it clad in marble and then you have you have the sort of shrewd what's the guy who came after him i don't remember his name but then you have roman emperors uh augustus tiberius caligula claudius yeah, Tiberius, yeah. that's his name. Um, I was going to say Germanicus, but that's his brother. Yeah, so, like, Tiberius is a very shrewd, was a very shrewd one, or at least was depicted as it. Um, and then Caligula was cruel and insane. And Claudius, who had largely been considered 
you know, soft and unassuming because he had an awful lot. He had a speech impediment and he had a limp, you know, like he's the one who was generally considered to be kind of an okay ruler. Um, And he was the one who got to grow old. He's sandwiched between Caligula and Nero, which I find very funny. It's so funny. Yeah, because it's also like those are two of the people that like, you know, they're like the two of the worst things to happen to Rome during its emperorship. And they're like, I mean, they are catchphrases for insanity and cruelty. <laughs> like, like when we say Caliglian, that, that's supposed to mean like something specific. And then, you know, uh, Rome burned while Nero played his fi- fiddle. Yeah. Um, I, we will come back to Cohen because the two lines do intersect at the end. And I really want to talk about that confrontation between Cohen and Carrot. But, but let's talk about the other line. Let's talk about the the kite and the rescue mission. So Vetinari gets this letter, right, from the Agitian Empire, and they tell him what's happening, and they're like, this is bad, right? And the wizards basically figure out that if Cohen blows up Cory Celesti, that the magical field, because we've talked about how the disc is more magic than it is science, right? Magic holds the disc together. This has been a theme since book one, since Color of Magic, if he blows up Cory Celesti, the magical field of the disc will destabilize and no life will be able to live on the disc, right? It will just all die or disappear. Um, and so Vetinari spearheads, because he's Vetinari, um, with the wizards, this, uh, this mission to stop Cohen by any means necessary. And But the problem is, is they can't get to Corey Celesti very quickly. And so he enlists Leonard of Quirm to design something that will get them to Corey Celesti in time to try to convince Cohen to, uh, to cease his mission. And Leonard of Quirm builds the kite, which is a very steampunk spaceship. So Discworld goes to space. I'm so glad that my boy Leonard of Quirm has got a starring role in it and that he's like, you know, part of the team that goes up. He's always wanted to fly, which is very Leonardo da Vinci, who was obsessed with flying. Yeah, because like, it would be so easy for him to stay on the ground and be like the mission control uh, along with the wizards. But like, having, having him be in a starring role is like, Really, I don't know. I really like it. But it's also like Vetinari seems genuinely surprised that like Leonard of Quirm is so affirmative that like is doing projects and actually making stuff instead of like being constantly distracted by what is quite clearly undiagnosed ADHD. Right. Absolutely. Leonard clearly has ADHD. I identify so much with that part of Leonard. I think part of it is hyperfixation. Right. If we're actually yeah. going to do a ADHD parallel is that Leonard gets hyper fixated on the kite. And so he can't he, he literally can't think of anything else but the kite and even or making things that'll help them survive in the kite or redesigning the kite. And part of that is uh, this thing that people with ADHD like me have, where if you have a due date and there's a sense of urgency it is easier to hyperfixate on something. So this makes sense to me in terms of that. But I, I also really loved that they're questioning. The wizards are like, wait, hold on. Who is this person? Why are we trusting him? And I really love the moment with Dean, the, the Dean, who name checks Bloody Stupid Johnson. 
where he says, what do we know of this man? He makes devices and paints pictures, doesn't he? Well, I'm sure that's all very nice, but we all know about artists, don't we? Flibberty gibbets to a man. And what about stupid, bloody stupid Johnson? Remember some of the things he built? <laughs> and I, I loved that this comparison. This just reminded me I of the, like, the bathroom. I feel like, yes, I feel like there are two people who make innovations on the disc like this, and it's bloody stupid Johnson and Leonard of Gorm. <laughs> And both of them are like equally as bad at making innovations because the things that Bloody Stupid Johnson makes are rarely work the way they're intended or they're designed in such like a ludicrous way. Whereas Leonard of Quirm, in the same way that like Leonardo da Vinci was like rarely ever complete a project and would become, you know, and becomes hyper fixated on something new that, you know, takes away all else from what he was doing on a previous project. So like, in that regard, they're like really similar in the sense that like they're not very good innovators. They have great ideas, but like the execution of them is the problem. And as right. someone who is a struggling writer, that's very easy to identify with. What did you think of the kite, which is this steampunk spaceship that's powered by swamp dragons? I thought that was so cool. Because, like, we've talked a lot before about, like, how science and technology can mix to make this, like, really cool, fun, steampunk-like atmosphere. And the idea that, like, like dragons are used for the, like, thrusters uh, and it's a steampunk rocket is just so cool. Like, I don't have any, like, jokes that I want to make about it. Like, I have done in, you know, other things, other, like technology on the disc i just think this is so fucking cool like i'm obsessed with space as well so having like disc world go to space uh which is just like a hilarious and awesome concept happen in the books i'm really i'm really excited they probably won't go back to space though again that's the only thing well i think the other thing that really helps this narrative because i love it too is the paul kidby illustrations which are just Mm. So good. I mean, like looking at the kite and seeing what it looks like, seeing, you know, the the view of them like plummeting off of the edge of the disc. And then as they're making their orbit, they see like the elephants, right? Like they're finally seeing the great Atuan and the elephants and, you know, all of these different things. And, you know, even Carrot says at one point, like, you know, it's true. Like, you know, you learn in school that you know that the that the disc is on top of elephants and it's on top of the turtle but actually seeing it right it's uh it's kind of like what astronauts talk about when they go up into space like you know that the earth is round and you kind of know what it looks like but it's very different to to be up there and to see the earth you know and and to know you know the how huge and how tiny it is at the same time yeah and because also like it wasn't always the like understood thing that um, the disc was on the back of four elephants, which were on the back of the Great Atuan, because, like, there was the, you know, in Small Gods, there was the whole thing about the Chelonian Mobile. I'd forgotten about that. Thank you for reminding me of that. Well, no, yeah, because just, like, I think, because, like, we, we, do, we do get, I, I just realized I made a weird noise there where we're like, we do get the, like, <laughs> first, fuck, the first book, like, w- uh, going into The Light Fantastic, we have Rinswin drop over the edge of the disc. And, you know, like, we've had a few references to, like, especially at the start of books, the way that the Great Atuan moves. But, like, it's rarely, like, addressed 
you know, it's really addressed as like having characters actually see and engage with the Tuan, um, and like that being mm-hmm. an acknowledged part of the cosmology. It's also like, like at the same time, like I can't see the moon right now, but I understand it to be there. But also, like if I were up in space, I would know the moon is there. But seeing the moon, I would be like, oh shit, that's the moon. It's just beautiful and like awe inspiring at the same time, I think. And there's some fun space references too. My favorite, of course, is where no one has gone before, which is, of course, a Trek reference you know, from the the opening monologue of Star Trek, specifically the opening monologue of The Next Generation, because in the original, it was where no man had gone before. But clearly, Terry Pratchett likes the updated, more progressive version where no one has gone before. Space, the final frontier. There are also some final frontier references here, too, which I, I really appreciate. Tessa, how many ears does Spock have? Two. Three. The left ear, the right ear, and the final front ear. I also really love on um, one of the pages we get a whole diagram of the kite. Like, and it's drawn. I love how Paul Kidby understands that Leonard of Quirm is Da Vinci. And so a lot of his drawings have that, especially the diagram drawings that are supposed to mm. be by Leonard. It's like looking at his notes, but they look like Da Vinci drawings. Like, you, you know, we all are very familiar with Da Vinci's notes and the way that he would scribble things down in corners of things and, you know, all of that stuff. And the, the illustrations look perfect to me, but they're Discworld. Yeah. Oh my God. I wish, I wish I had it to show you. There was a book I saw it at work and I, I purchased it. It's this like beautiful hardcover like slipcase edition that's just folio reproductions of uh, Da Vinci's notebooks. It's so fucking cool. Like I I left it I at would work. Love I'm to gonna see have that. yeah yeah I'm gonna have to sit like uh like I left it in my locker. So I'm gonna have to like take photos of it when I'm uh when I go back to work tomorrow. Oh yeah no no, no just because like I had said before that I had had a digital copy of it which got rid of the illustrations I went back and found a physical copy so I could look at the illustrations and yeah no they're they're so cool they're gorgeous they're absolutely gorgeous because yeah he alternates between these like Da Vinci style drawings and blueprints and and so on for the kite and for aspects of that and these just like magnificent vistas of space. And then he has obviously like different characters that he's drawn as well, which sometimes I don't like. Um, sometimes when I read a book, I, I don't necessarily like to see pictures of them um, unless it's specifically a comic book or a graphic novel, um, because I'm just like, I already had like images of these people in my head and now I have to like look at a picture of them. But I actually think he does a pretty good job. Like none of the drawings that he he had particularly conflicted with the images I had in my mind of these characters. The whole thing is that, like, now he's taking over, he's taking over from an artist who had, like, you know, shaped what people's conception of the Discworld was for so long. And it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel incongruous with it. And does he continue on then just for the rest of the series then? Like, doing all the rest of the covers for... Yeah, he's been included on the sleeve cover since Pratchett's original illustrator, Josh Kirby, died in 2001. Um, so yeah, okay, he basically yeah. took over. Well, no, yeah, I wanted to see whether um, I wanted to see whether like there wasn't another um, replacement or something because like depending on the project, 
you know, having a variety of artists doing their things, like, is, is cool, you know, and it helps it. But, like, I feel like having a solid vision for, like, Discworld is really, I don't know, it, it it's better and of more benefit than, like, having multiple illustrators do stuff. I don't know. I don't know why. I'm going to ask your opinion on that. Just, like, do you, do you have an opinion on why that is? I think that part of it is that you want a cohesive vision in something that's as not scattered as the Discworld, because scattered is the wrong word, but like all these different books have different personalities, right? And they they have different kind of things that they're that they're interested in. It's not quite as it's not quite like Marvel where, you know, like it's weird to see Doctor Strange in the same movie as Spider-Man, you know, because those are like two very different feels in the comics and two very different like characters and they you know those stories are vastly different from each other but it's kind of sort of along that vein you know like the witches books are very different from the rincewind books are very different from the watch books and so i think having someone cohesively draw it kind of helps it helps with the continuity which we've talked about as not being particularly important especially because of what happens in thief of time but it does kind of help make it feel like it's the same place I really want to get some of the, like, illustrated ancillary books. Yeah, and he did a lot of those, too. Um, He did the Pratchett Portfolio, the Art of Discworld. Like, he he included a lot of those types of things. Let's talk about the other astronauts. (laughs) Cosmonauts, maybe, I think is probably a better term. We've talked a bit about Rincewind, but were you expecting Carrot? to volunteer and then to be part of this mission genuinely no i wasn't expecting there to be any watch person and i'm not entirely sure why part of it's kind of like encapsulated by the quote at the end that like you know any uh, like it's a mission to go like to the realm of the gods and like a god of coppers is kind of like alien to Karis and like no self-respecting police person would believe something claiming to be a god of police people. I I just wanted to say that quote is very funny because he's talking to blind Io and I wanted to point out that in all the watch books we've talked about how Carrot starts quoting Vimes right and then Vimes starts quoting Carrot and the way that those two characters have like pushed each other right to grow in different ways Carrot does continue that here because when he's talking to blind Io about the God of policemen and, and the God of policemen and so on, he says, uh, Io's, blind Io says to him, but are you a God fearing, God's fearing man? What I've seen of them certainly frightens the life out of me, sir. And my commander always says, when we go about our business in that, the city, that when you look at the state of mankind, you are forced to accept the reality of the gods. And that's supposed to be an Funny, because when Vime says it, it's irony, right? Like, the gods are cruel and capricious, and when you look at mankind, you can tell, but Blind Io doesn't understand irony, so he, like, it goes right over his head, right? But I just think it's funny that at the end of the book, we get this, as my commander says, you know, like, we get that callback to the way that Vimes has influenced Carrot. And this is something that we've talked about, you and I ourselves, about, like, the concept of religious trauma, which is something that, like, I think Vimes is kind of touching on. You know, when when Vimes says that quote about, like, well, if you look at the people in the street, you'll see the reality of the gods that they're cruel and capricious and don't give a shit about people. Mm Mm-hmm. 
but like I think it's an interesting distinction between Karish and Vimes is that like like in a lot of matters really like it's so easy to let that sort of hatred and anger and resentment consume you and that like you rarely do you ever see someone like processing these things in a healthy way like Vimes said about like why he joined the watch like he was a criminal and it may have killed him if he didn't stop like eventually it's going to turn on you for fuel that fire Kara is on this mission so if we were to talk about motivations right Leonard is on this mission because he can be, <laughs> because he gets to do the thing that he wants to do, right? I don't think he actually even cares about Cohen. Yeah, it's like a my game, my rules thing where he's like, I'm making this thing, I'm going on the rockets. Right, yeah, it's very much like uh, Vetinari needed this to happen, and so he's, in, he's into it because of the science and the magic and like making it work. Rincewind is there because he knows that, he's, that narratively he's required to be there, so he might as well just be there. Carrot has interesting motivations because he's there because he is a hero. <laughs> I mean, like that that's kind of what he's been set out to be, even though I don't think he would consider himself a hero in the same way that Cohen is. He's there to arrest Cohen, <laughs> right? He sees Cohen as inherently breaking the law and endangering the disc, which is something Vimes says. We do get a very brief shot of Vimes at the beginning um, in that meeting with the guild members when they're like, I'm sure there's a way that we could say that he's broken the law. And Vimes gives a list of reasons, right? Mm. So it's very, very brief, even though Vimes isn't in the rest of this. And so Carrot's there to, to stop what's happening because he sees the need for it. He knows that it has to be done. I do wonder a little bit because Angua is not in this, if Angua was consulted before he decided to um, volunteer himself. That's neither here nor there. I feel like a lot of the time when you say things and you have these like questions, I'm like, first, I want to talk about this thing. And I'm very sorry. Oh, as yeah, a go ahead. No, it's fine. Uh, I'm all apologies, like the Nirvana song. Um, but no, like, I think what's interesting as well is that, like, finally, we have Karish and Rinsmond in the same space. Uh, where oh, let's talk about those... that because I love it. <laughs> not, Not even the comedy, but like. Like you say, Rinswin is there because he feels narratively he has to be there. Both of those people are like, like Rinswin is the reluctant hero and the narrative wants him to be the hero. But like, by that same token, that's pretty much the same thing that Carrot is in that he's like the king in exile. He's the Aragorn of the peace. But like Aragorn, it's not about ego for him. It's just what needs to be done. Yeah, exactly. So he like fills the space because he, it's what he needs. He feels needs to be done, and Rincewind feels the need to fill that space because like he thinks that's what he should do. And most of the time, that comes down to doing what's right, a, a la like at the end of Sorcery, or even when he goes after Two Flower at the end of the Light Fantastic. It's like they're coming from the exact same place. They just get into the rocket for different variations on the same reason except for the librarian who just gets in because there's snacks <laughs> yeah and so the rinsewind carrot stuff is hilarious to me like i love that rinsewind confounds carrot like they do not speak the same language at all rinsewind thinks carrot is an idiot um and carrot as patient and wonderful as Carrot is, he finds Rincewind annoying. 
And I love that one. I love that Rincewind tricked Carrot into because Carrot makes them all uniforms, right? Because he's a watchman, and that's that's what you do. I love that Rincewind tricks Carrot into the 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 motto: "Those who about those of us who are about to die don't want to." Rincewind is kind of the like expert on Latin uh, in the you know in the university. He's the one who speaks it, and like Carrot is the one who understands that in the watch as well. And to have him get to have him get one over on Carrot is very funny. Carrot is like the most patient person, right? Like he gets on with everybody. He has to deal with a lot, right? And we rarely see, we, we, we only just started to see that nastier side of him, right? That comes out at the end of or the fifth elephant, like little hints of it before. And the way that he does it is very subtle and you don't necessarily realize that it's happening. But I still love that Rincewind, of all the people that Carrot has interacted with, manages to annoy Carrot so much that Carrot turns around during that submission, that transmission with uh, Vetinari and the, the rest of the wizards and pulls Rincewind's hat down over his head <laughs> so he can't speak anymore. <laughs> Which is like, like, like Rincewind is the person who can make Carrot snap like that. Not Colin, Rincewind. <laughs> yeah, it's his hat that does it. The thing yeah. that Rincewind for so long used to identify himself as a wizard is now what's shutting him up. Now that he has like his peace and quiet. Yeah. Although I, I will also point out that Rincewind's helmet also has wizard on it, which I think is also great. But yeah, so we get to the end of the book and Kara is now standing between Cohen and his mission the end right bringing fire back to the gods and carrot <laughs> tries to put cohen under arrest and uh cohen and the silver horde find this very amusing but then they realize that if they attack carrot there's what seven of them against one and they understand we haven't talked about the code although we've been dancing around it the code came up in interesting times as well that narratively things have to happen right in in the code for you to survive and the idea is is that because it's 7 against 1 here that they would actually be violating the code that they would be on the wrong side of it right that carrot would win because he's the one standing up to uh the majority and so there's this there's this really interesting section. The cackle was all alone in the sudden quietness. The horde could calculate the peculiar mathematics of heroism quite quickly. There was, there always was, at the start and finish, the code. They lived by the code. You followed the code and you became part of the code for those who followed you. The code was it. Without the code, you weren't a hero. You were just a thug in a loincloth. The code was quite clear. One brave man against seven. One. They knew it was true. In the past, they'd all relied on it. The higher the odds, the greater the victory. That was the code. Forget the code, dismiss the code, deny the code, and the code would take you. And so again, we get into we get into narrative convention here and the fact that they know how this goes, and suddenly it's been turned on to them, right? They're the ones who are usually outnumbered, but suddenly they're like, wait a minute. Maybe we're not on the right side of this because narratively, Carrot now has to win. But it's also interesting that, like, the code that they've, you know, counted on to get them out of situations is, like, exactly the same as um, the lady being the million to one chance. 
Right. Yeah. And the million to one chance also comes up quite a bit in this as well, which I don't know if we've really seen a lot of that since Guards Guards. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's this really interesting passage, right, that reminds us of things from Men at Arms, especially. um, But it also reminds me of stuff from the watch books. And so we get to see Cohen and Carrot interact here, right, which is a very interesting combo, I think. They looked down at Captain Carrot's sword. It was short, sharp, and plain. It was a working sword. It had no runes on it. No mystical gleam twinkled on its edge. If you believed in the code, that was worrying. One simple sword in the hands of a truly brave man would cut through a magical sword like suet. It wasn't a frightening thought, but it was a thought. Funny thing, said Cohen, but I heard tell once that down in Ankh-Morpork there's some watchman who's really heir to the throne but keeps very quiet about it because he likes being a watchman. Oh dear, thought the horde, kings in disguise, that was code material right there. Carrot met Cohen's gaze. Never heard of him. What did you think about that interaction? Well, it's not... It is in the code, right? Like kings in disguise, that's part of the code. But denying that is not part of the code, right? Like that's that's going against that's going that's going against narrative, right? And that's something they have never done. They have never done in their lives, right? They've always lived by the code. Um and so like the idea is is that he fits into the code, but he is specifically going against the code by not acknowledging that he's actually the king of Ankh-Morpork, which is kind of like what Cohen is trying to do by blowing up Corey Celesti, right? It's to destabilize this system that they exist in. They thought that it was, they treat it like this is some sort of funny thing, that it's weird that he wouldn't want to be a king. But like they address that it's, um, you know, code material, but also like anytime that Venonari has brought up the fact that Carrot is, should be ruling Ankh-Morpork, it's always with this, like, you know, winking and knowing way, um, which makes it seem like it's it's funny. But, like, the Silver Horde uh, and Cohen treat it like it's nearly, like, like a weird thing, that it, it frightens them. No, I, I don't know. I was, like, when you think about it, like, it's a deliberate act of destabilization which, like you said before, may or may not work, uh, like, with their own actions, um, but might inspire future people, whereas Carrot uses this, like, destabilization of not instituting a kingship to, like, affect actual meaningful social change. Yeah, and to protect what Ankh-Morpork has, right? Because he knows that what he if he claimed it, then Ankh-Morpork would become something else. And he doesn't want that. Well, actually, okay, first of all, since we've we've come to this like end where both of the two threads meet each other, I did want to ask you, first of all, about the ending of Cohen. So Cohen, once convinced that this is a bad idea, that he'll destroy the world if he blows up the gods, but they've already turned on the timer, right? So they decide to launch themselves off of the mountain, the whole silver horde with the with the bomb, go out, you know, in a blaze of glory, literally, right? Which is one of the most badass things that you can possibly do. Like this is the equivalent of like riding a shark into a volcano, right? Uh, that's a Despicable Me Too reference if you didn't get it. Um, 
what do you think about this? Yeah. What did you think about this particular ending for Cohen and the Silver Horde? And the fact that we get this uncertainty about whether they may or may not be dead, but they steal the Valkyrie's horses and ride off anyway. It's the best possible ending, I think, narratively for them. Because the whole point was that, like, they've lived too long and really they kind of want to be dead because they feel like they've gone past the point of uselessness. And now that they're finding a new lease on life, that, like, at the end of the story, it goes back to, like, because, like, earlier on we have a, a cameo from Albert where he's talking with Death about Schrodinger's cat. And this is something, you know, that's been in previous Discworld books. It's like now, thanks to Quantum, there's an uncertainness about whether people are living or dead because of that uh, Schrodinger's cat thing. But, like, we don't have that. And finally, like, the end of Cohen's story in the Discworld is the same as, like, the end of a saga should be, where, you know, they walk off stage at the end of the the saga and we don't know what happens to them that it's just their deeds and their glories and their triumphs uh and that's it finally he's left behind this legacy that's like followed him around for better or worse for his entire too long life that he's finally gotten rid of that yeah and i think it also goes back to the alexander thing right where he says like instead of crying about it you go and you find more worlds to conquer And so there is also this sense that, you know, what we've talked about, about him outliving the world that he was created in, right? There's no place for him in this world anymore. That's Trollbridge, right? But he doesn't, but he doesn't have to die. There is a third option. And that third option is to go to find a different world. A secret third thing. Yeah, like, like, because in Alexander's life, it's die or you know, you've outlived your nar- narrative usefulness, so you die, right? I know that this really happened, and it sounds like I'm talking about Alexander as a fictional character, but his life just manages to, like, line up that way. I think that is an interesting point, just, like, for this consideration of how, like, like people in history who do all these things and, like, have such a mythology built around them essentially become fictional characters, and we'll never know, like, the actual real-life person. Like, you know, we have more of an idea of who Winston Churchill was, right. let's say, or Adolf Hitler, or anyone within the past hundred or so years than we ever will about who Alexander the Great ever was. Like, instead of crying about it, because Alexander was limited by geography, right? He had outlived his narrative purpose um, that had been given to him by his parents. That was all he knew how to do. His destiny, Right. But he was limited by geography. Because we are in a fantasy world, in the disc world, geography doesn't have to be a limiting factor, right? And Cohen, I think, accurately re- like realizes that, is that there's no place for him on the disc anymore. The world is different. It's changed. He's outlived his narrative purpose. But he doesn't have to just die, right? He can go on. He can go find a world that does fit him and the Silver Horde. And so... I really like that. That seems to me to challenge... It both reifies the ending of a saga, right? But it also challenges it at the same time. Because, like, like to return to Beowulf, probably one of the, like, best examples of a heroic saga, like, in the same way that Cohen is trying to exist in, that's like, well, like, if Beowulf really, you know, 
knew what he was doing, <laughs> he could go find other worlds to conquer, or I don't know, he could just enjoy a peaceful retirement. Like, there are other options. Although, it would be very funny if it were like, if Alexander the Great hopped in a spaceship. That would be a fun episode of Doctor Who. The other thing I wanted to, to mention here is that Carrot, despite the fact that he went on this mission to save the gods, or at least save the disc, is very disillusioned with the gods, just like Cohen is by the end of this, right? And the thing that causes him to be disillusioned is that the gods decide that the kite is blasphemous, that if we had meant for people to fly, we would have given them wings, uh, which is a very old thing, right? It's like a creationist argument, isn't it? And so they sentence Leonard of Quirm to redecorate the ceiling of the temple of, in Small Gods, in the temple of Small Gods in Ankh-Morpork, which it, the funny thing is, is that Carrot immediately recognizes the injustice of this and he's super angry about it. But then Leonard is just like, oh, I could do that. That's fine. Like, that's a really interesting project. Um, so that that is like a really funny like twist. <laughs> but Carrot says it's not fair. And then, you know, he he says... You know, he gets so angry and he says, uh, Captain Carrot had gone quiet with anger as the sky does just before a thunderstorm. Um, and then, you know, he Captain Carrot uses his ability to negotiate and his ability to to find, you know, that to find the to use the letter of the law, right, to do the right thing, which we've seen in other books to kind of trick the gods into letting Leonard repair the kite so they can fly back to Ankh-Morpork. He's somebody who doesn't usually get angry, um, and he's he's not Vimes, right? But he is somebody who cares deeply about doing the right thing, and I think this very much upsets him. Yeah, well, I mean, like, they did it, but I, I think it also comes down to, like, the motives for why they all got in the thing by and large. Because, mm -hmm. like, he got into the thing because he thought that Cohen was a threat to the disc. And I think he's confronted with the fact that the gods are, by and large, like, a much greater threat to the disc than anyone else. Like, you know, a human or sentient being is. I think it goes against his, his watchman instincts, because Carrot is not the same person as he was in Guards Guards, you know, where he was, like, letter of the law, like, you know, I'm going to arrest the the head of the Thieves Guild, you know, Vimes has taught him a lot more flexibility than that, but that doesn't mean he doesn't, he's not still that person inside, right? He still very much cares about rules and justice and, you know, and so I think that the existence of the gods and the facts that they can just like do things that are primarily unjust, I think that really bothers him. And Vimes already knows it. Vimes is very aware that the world is unjust and that the gods, you know, are cruel, but I think this is really one of the first times Carrot has been forced to, like, really face it. Yeah, and because, like, like, the realization that what they wind up for doesn't really matter. Yeah. I think is also, like, so they've gone up here and now they're being punished for it because they thought they were doing the right thing. Now, like, and as it transpired, the, the Silver Horde would have reached the same conclusion with a bit of outside help, like you said earlier on. That, like, I think it is the... Like, it's, it's a massive slap in the face for Karras. Because, you know, for his whole life, he's believed and it's shown that, like, doing things for the right reasons will have, you know, to be a good outcome in the end. You know, he'll be able to save Angua from her brother. You know, they'll be able to stop 
the Ghana from killing people all over Ankh-Morpork, whatever it is. They'll prevent a war with Clatch because they did what they did because it was the right thing to do or they believed it. And now, not only is he being confronted with the fact that, well, it was kind of pointless that, like, he's going to be punished for doing it by these things which should have his interests at heart. It goes against, and this is what I think about the the con- you know the confrontation and the conclusion of the book. It goes against his belief that personal isn't the same as important. Yes, which we started to see him let go of a little bit in the Fifth Elephant for Angua, but I don't think he would do it for anyone else. Yeah, because like like your personal belief and believing in a god is kind of like assuming that they'll step in and help. And right. then having them be punished for trying to, you know, save the disc world and, you know, not letting people's personal beliefs get in the way. And then having that flipped on him that, like, he can't really prioritize one instead of the other. Uh, it goes completely against that. He's And the gods don't live that way. Like, the gods clearly believe that personal, like, they only care about the personal. They don't even think about the important. Yeah. Because like their whole thing is they just play games with people. Like they they only give a shit about their own temporary amusement. Yeah, that's just like the antithesis of what Carrot thinks a god should be, right? So that that totally makes sense to me. Before I get to the wrap up, let's talk about just a couple characters that we haven't mentioned so far. What did you think about Vetinari and the Wizards back at back at Houston, back at HQ? As they're trying to like troubleshoot things and uh, you know help Leonard design the thing on the fly and all of that, I think it's interesting that we see Ponder take on more of an active role in this book than he has in past books when he's gone on adventures with the wizards. And I think a large part of that is that he and Leonard understand each other more than the wizards have ever understood Ponder. What did you think about this relationship? I think for the same reason that like I'm finding kinship in different aspects of Leonard of Quirm based off of my personal like life and circumstances. I think that's the same reason that like Ponder and Leonard get on so well. It's because like for the first time there's someone who actually like is on the same wavelength as them. Yeah, and the wizards just are like what are you doing, Ponder? Oh, quantum something, something with hex. Oh, okay. And like, Ridcully seems to just humor him in the sense that, like, I don't really believe in this, but if it's important, it's good to have. Vetinari is kind of Leonard's patron, and he is giving him, you know, a pretty good life, you know, despite keeping him imprisoned. But he doesn't understand Leonard either. He understands how smart Leonard is, so his relationship with Leonard is much better than. Ponder's relationship with the wizards, but Vetinari doesn't understand. He can't talk to Leonard the same way that Ponder can. Like, they're both as smart as each other. They both can talk to each other about a lot of things. But you do have this sort of different mindset about the world because Ponder is very STEM, right? Yes. He's a grad student. And Leonard's student. an arts girly. But, but Leonard is also very scientific, right? And so... You're coming up with this like STEM siloed academic perspective with the Renaissance man perspective, right? The the person who's able to do a lot of things versus the person who is like 
what, how do you think that that affects their relationship and the way they talk to each other? You can almost read it as almost a generational metaphor. But also like the Renaissance man and that kind of like bon vivant, like um, attitude, it's not done in the way that you go into a degree, you know, where you're like, well, I'm going to study this for this result. It's like, well, these, I find these things interesting and that's why I'm going to study them. So like when you look at the the notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, he's got stuff on anatomy, on flight, on geology, biology, you know, everything just because it was interesting. That ha- like that probably has like a really profound effect on the way they view the world. A generational one, I think, is interesting because like on the one hand, everyone nowadays is more open and like exploring the world and you see people like becoming really big for, you know, like things like content creation or whatever. And they're doing things they're passionate about and there's much more opportunities to pursue. College courses and stuff are much more you know, like, strict, um, whatever, and they're very, like, pigeonholed and not applicable to other things. Well, let's talk about the other people on the ship who are running this. So you have Ponder and Leonard, who are definitely our MVPs, and then you have Vetinari and the Wizards. I was going to ask you first, how do you feel about Vetinari in this whole book, I guess, because he is kind of the Nick Fury to... (laughs) all of these other people in this situation. But then what did you think about the way that he directed this mission slash adventure? I thought it was fun. Yeah, like, it's it's interesting having him actually have to, like, work with people. Because mm-hmm. for so much of what we've seen, he's kind of, like, outside of it all. Even, like, when he was being poisoned, he was, like, just sitting there waiting for Vimes to figure it out, not saying anything. When he was framed for multiple crimes, he was in in the truth. He was like unconscious. Yeah, yeah. He was he was unconscious, uh, and then sort of just like remarkably blasé about it once he was awake. And so, like having him, or because like even when he told Rincewind to take two flower around uh, and give him like his you know tourist view of um, Pork and the surrounding areas. It was like, this is a threat and he expects to get his wishes done and carried out the way he wants them uh, with no questions. But like, it's a real change of pace to have him like work on things. And I think this is the most active we've seen him since Jingo. That was probably the last time that we saw him actually like in the action of it. And it might be the only other time really that we've seen him that way. Vetinari does save them by recognizing when when Leonard is knocked out and Rincewind's trying to figure out the controls and he's reading all of the the different labels, the backwards labels, and he said this one is called uh, the Tiller for some reason, and Vetinari says pull that one, and he he says he tells the the story right, the folktale about the prince who um, went around the world and and that's where the name came from. So I found that really cool because if he hadn't been there. They would have died because Ponder has yeah. that very STEM silo. And so this is like that argument, right? Like, oh, this is this is why you should take English lit classes. This is why you should blah, blah, blah. Because you won't recognize some of these references that are, in this case, life-saving. <laughs> uh, but it's also like a really nice indicator of the relationship between Leonard and Veterinary. That like, he understands him enough to know that. As much as we've said mm-hmm. that like, Veterinary doesn't get him as much as Ponder does, like, Veterinary understands him enough as a person and, like, what he likes 
to to under, um, understand the Tiller reference. I also really liked how they described how like the wizards were actually moving pretty quickly because general danger it wasn't a sense of general danger which is really hard to get people to like visualize but it's it's a case of specific danger from veterinary yeah (laughs) i i that what that reminded me of was this idea that like there's been a lot of writing about climate disaster and this idea that it's actually really hard for people to think about something that is just so like general and all-encompassing there's like and so people, it has, it's very difficult for them to think about climate change in like manageable sizes because it's just too big. Yeah, like I know when I think about the climate thing and like when I think about how worse it's getting, sometimes I literally just start crying and I can't do anything. I kind of just sit there for a bit, like I, I frozen for a tiny bit. But what Venari does in this situation is to make it into a specific danger. And I, I was like, man, maybe we should just like recruit Vetinari to deal with a climate situation. Like he would just, he, cause he would make it specific. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The world ending would be less of a problem than what Vetinari would do to you. Yeah. <laughs> what did you think about the wizards? Um, I'm not going to say this is the last time we get to see a romp with this particular group of wizards, but it is definitely kind of, you know, the ending of, of this era of the Discworld. What did you think about Red Coley and the senior Wrangler and all of them on their on like a ultimate adventure? This adventure is so different to like everything that they've been on before. Like it's so different in because like ostensibly the the stakes are still the same as like the last continent or whatever, you know, like it's still like world ending stakes. But it feels more personal, maybe because like one of their own is up there and they're like actually trying for specific things because they know that like for all their magic and whatever, they can just hope that they they just have to hope that this rocket goes up and works and that they can do something up there to stop Cohen from bringing fire to the gods. So like they're ineffective in a way as well. In the same way that Venonari is slightly ineffective the wizards also are which is which is interesting to see because like by and large they've kind of just bumbled around and gotten it but like by dint of there being magic uh, yeah and it's like well there's a magic thing we need to do and as long as we do that everything will be fine but this is like we just have to rely on a design made by leonard of Quirm with some people yeah. that we've sent up and hope that they can do something while they just, like, wait. We also get a very, very brief moment with the luggage. Basically, the luggage is in Rincewind's cabin, and Rincewind basically tells the luggage that it needs to stay behind with Ponder and the wizards because you don't do very well with heights, and, you know, every time you've met a god, things have gone wrong, and so... But the the way that the... The luggage, the affect of the luggage, insofar as the luggage has an affect, is kind of like leaving a dog at home, right? Like, you leave your dog, and you, they just look so sad. Like, you know, and they're, they're just like, when are you going to come back? I, you have dogs. You know what I'm talking about. When you leave a dog, and it just, like, looks heartbroken. Like, it'll never see you again. My dog, Willow, looks heartbroken when, like, I stand up to stretch after sitting on the couch riding for, like, you know, like, a long period of time or oh. whatever. And I don't, like, let her go outside. 
It's ridiculous. It's cool to see the luggage again, especially because, you know, this is this is a book with Rincewind. If you have a book with Rincewind, I expect to see the luggage. That's just part of the the deal, right? This is part of the the particular this particular series. You're like Werner Herzog in The Mandalorian. I would like to see the luggage. I would like to see the luggage. I have to say I'm kind of relieved that the luggage also didn't go along with them because I think that the luggage has become too OP in the Rincewind It would be too books. much, yeah. Yeah, but I, I don't know. What did you think about just getting this brief glimpse? I liked it, but like I think after the events of Eric, like if they wanted to deal with the gods, like... Letting the luggage go and like eat her god and then instate itself as the god for a little while <laughs> would be would be an interesting solution. I mean, yeah, because the the luggage can go through space and time to find its its owner. So, like in that case, just like throw rincewind at the gods and let the luggage loose. I don't know. So the last reference that I wanted to point our attention to, just because, you know, there are so many of these Easter eggs and references in this book that, you know, really that, kind of pull that, on some That's threads. another thing. Yeah. Sorry. That's just, that's another thing about the illustrations. Like we've had Terry writing loads of like references and stuff like in the actual text, but having illustrations is, is a, a way to just like slip in even more when you're watching a film and there's like a character in the background, which is. I don't know, like from a different film or uh, like, didn't they do something like that in Community? They had Beetlejuice in the background, you know, whenever they said Beetlejuice. Yes, yes, I remember that. But yeah, so the, the reference I was thinking of was the one on the moon because they meet a bunch of dragons that, guess what, function just like Errol and blow fire backwards. And so... You know, Carrot actually says this. He, you know, he mentions Errol and says, "Oh, we had we had a dragon like this. Maybe he somehow like made his way down from the moon." And then there's that whole theory about how like actually some of them just got stuck down there, and <laughs> like that that that's actually where the dragons came from was the moon. What do you think of that reference to Errol? I'm happy that um, Errol gets a reference. It's like as the Discworld gets more and more interconnected, it feels like like part of the time it's kind of just ignoring. Some of the stuff that happened before, you know? Yeah. Uh, like, especially the tone of the older books. But it's nice to have yeah. a reference to Errol. And especially how, like, Errol uh, related to Vimes and his relationship with Sybil. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Which, Sybil gets a shout-out that Sunshine Sanctuary for Dragons is is mentioned in this book as well. I wonder if Errol and the and the lady dragon from Guards Guards, I wonder if they went back to the moon. I wonder if they're like living on like on the other side of the moon or something. So that's why like Carrot didn't meet them. That'd be really funny if it were just like they were like right there. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> just like watching along. There are three death references in this book. The first one happens on page 69 and that's where the <laughs> that is where the this is where Albert is trying to explain uh the Schrodinger's cat experiment to death and death is just like very upset. He doesn't understand it and he's very upset that like a cat could be harmed in this. That's probably my favorite one out of the book because like Death as a lover of cats, just, like, as his personality trait. Because, like, Schrodinger's cat is kind of, like, 
it, it's difficult to understand already. Like it, it's kind of impossible to visualize. But especially because of Schrodinger's cat, it's like fucked up Death's job where he has to appear in situations where people might die as well. To then have him not be able to understand it and focus just on the cat, I think is hilarious. Yeah, and I love the part where Albert says the act of looking at it that determines if it's alive or not. Death looked hurt. Are you suggesting I will kill the cat just by looking at it? It's not quite like Comedy that, Comedy gold. I mean, it's not as if I make faces or anything. He's, like, horrified by the idea that, he, like, he as an entity could hurt a cat. Uh, the second death sighting, and the, honestly, this might be my favorite one, is when the kite is, like, crashing or, like, um, yeah, it's crashing because the uh, um, the librarian can't steer it, right? Or doesn't know how to land it. So... So uh, Rincewind is sitting there and there's suddenly like he's suddenly in a little private space in time of his own and it's death. Right. Who's there um, because they might crash and die. And so the whole like, would you like a peanut? I'm afraid it's a little hard to get the packet open. And I love that. Like, like we've been talking about the whole death and Rincewind, you know, relationship throughout all of these books. And I love that not only do we get a scene with death and Rincewind, but it's like so similar to some of the scenes before. Right. Where. Like, the rest of them can't talk to Death, but he can. And Death is just, like, sitting there, like, would you like a peanut, Rincewind? <laughs> like, if this is, like, if we're getting a send-off to Rincewind, we're not going to have any more, like, weirdly shippable moments between Death and Rincewind. So, like, I'm happy that this happened. <laughs> I am, too. Been a moment. I like how he's, like, the, it's like the thing with Vimes. The uncertainty principle is playing hell on my job. And then the last time we see Death is, of course, when he's talking to Mrs. McGarry, who is unsure if Cohen has died or not. Or, or like, you know, Cohen gets on the horses and they're like, we didn't quite die. And then after they leave, are you collecting, she said, and turned to look at the mounted figure? That is something about which I do not propose to enlighten you, said Death. But you are here, said Vina, although she felt a lot more like Mrs. McGarry again. Uh, I am, of course, everywhere. In the olden days, she said, when a hero had been really heroic, the gods would just put them up in the stars. The heavens change, said Death. What today looks like a mighty hunter may look like a teacup in a hundred years' time. That doesn't said, seem fair. No one ever said that it had to be. But there are other stars. And I love this scene because the Death who we met in Color of Magic, or even in Mort, would have never said something like this, right? Because it's always the that's not fair. There is no justice. There's just me. But now he says, nobody ever said it had to be, but there are other stars, which I think indicates that death's perspective on that has perhaps changed a little. Like the death in color of magic hasn't pleaded before Azrael. Like he hasn't had that perspective shift yet. Right. He hasn't had like a clear reminder of what could happen if he doesn't do his job the way he does it and like make him appreciate humanity yeah because like in the original recording i think like we talked about how this is a satisfying resolution to character growth for a lot of people but i don't think we ever mentioned that like it's a nice uh capstone to death yeah at this point most of the death-centric books have also happened right there's there's yes, no more all of them yeah all of them yeah i mean we're gonna see more death but yes not in the same way that we did through the earlier books yeah uh and then very briefly there is an appearance by death of rats although there are no lines or descriptions we just see him in the illustrations on page 69 and 70 that full spread page he's in the corner of 169 and then he's on death's shoulder 
on the next oh. page. Yeah. I didn't even realize he was in the corner. There are a couple of references to sort. Hell yeah. When the minstrel tells Cohen about Sorty and not, which is, of course, we've talked about how Sort and Ephebe are very much like Greek, Troy, you know, types of analogs. Uh, the, well, then on page 19, uh, Cohen brings it up again when talking about how they're going to kind of have their own Sorty and not conversation. The first footnote is on page nine. And basically, it, it's an interesting one. And I was going to ask you a question about this because... The creature now seeking out a particular building below was a trained pointless albatross, and by the standards of the world, not particularly unusual. Footnote. Compared to, say, the Republican bees who committed rather than swarmed intended to stay in the hive a lot voting for more honey. And I was so curious. Is there, like, is there a party or a, a group of people in the UK that you would refer to as Republican? Because this seems like maybe an American reference, but I'm not sure it really works for an american reference either yeah no because like like in ireland the word republican has like definite really concrete connotations you know like when we say republican we mean like socialist you know like and with that the, seems the uh, opposite of what yeah like, like with with the irish republican army the ira but when you talk about republican in america they're all very right-wing but in terms of the UK, I don't really think so. Like, you've got conservatives who are center to right, and then you have Labour who is or who are ostensibly left wing. Although a lot of their par er, party politics recently kind of don't make you believe that. In terms of that Republican, like I don't, and as well because it, it's it's capitalized. Yeah. So I was very confused it's either, by this. Yeah. So like, it seems to be that it's either. A specific species of bee that's called a Republican bee, or it's a part like it's a party that's been capitalized or something. But it doesn't really make sense for the UK, as far as I'm aware. It's analogous to Labour in the sense that like they just like they're not really effective in government, and yeah. by and large, it's been conservative conservative governments, especially around like Terry's life was like mostly conservative governments. Yeah. And so, like, as as opposition labor, kind of a bit ineffective. So maybe that is it. It's just this weird, like, non, non-action-based non government where they think just lobbying will work. I don't know. It's really a, it's really a head-scratcher. Yeah, see, in the U.S., it's definitely the Democrats who have that reputation, not the Republicans. Yeah. So... Yeah, like, how many, how many Republicans do you know like, go and filibuster stuff. Yeah, it's... The Republicans, unfortunately, have a very evil swarm method, which is to get... The, which does get things done. So, yeah, it's it's an odd reference, for sure. Do you have a favorite footnote? See, because there's only, like, four footnotes in this book, and you've mentioned one of them. And one of them is about bloody stupid Johnson, who we've talked about before. But none <laughs> of them I, th I thought were really good footnotes. You know, not compared to the other books we've read. But I did like the one about the size of heaven. Yeah. Just because of how it ends. Few religions are definite about the size of heaven, but on the planet Earth, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 16, gives it as a cube, 12,000 furlongs on a side. This is somewhat less than 5 million, billion, trillion, quadrillion, quintillion, 500 sextillion cubic feet. 
even allowing that the heavenly house and other essential services take up at least two-thirds of the space, this leaves about one million cubic feet of space for each human occupant, assuming that every creature that could be called human is allowed in, and that the human race eventually totals a thousand times the number of humans alive up until now. This is such a generous amount of space that it suggests that room has also been provided for some alien races, or, a happy thought, that pets are allowed. <laughs> I like that just because, like, like... The actual Pope had to come out and say, no, dogs do go to heaven. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't want their animals in heaven? My favorite footnote was definitely the one um, on page 84. You have this like image of the different gods gathered around the uh, chessboard that they're playing at. And there's the footnote. A few of the Discworld gods passing the time as they do, left to right. Sesifet, goddess of the afternoon. Offler, the crocodile god. Flatuous, god of winds. Fate. Eureka, god of sauna, snow, and theatrical performances for fewer than 120 people. Blind Io, chief of the gods and general thundering. Libertina, goddess of the sea, apple pie, even certain types of types of ice cream and short lengths of string. The lady, don't ask. Bilbilis, god of wine and things on sticks. Bettina, goddess of wisdom. Tapaxi, god of certain mushrooms and also of great ideas you forgot to write down and will never remember again. And of people who tell each other people that dog is god spelled backwards and think this is in some way revelatory. Bast, god of things left on the doorstep or half digested under the bed. And the thing that gets me about that footnote is that it's all of these like made up gods and goddesses with different names. I mean, there's some parallel to maybe other gods like Blind Io is clearly Zeus, you know, that kind of thing. But then just have bast which makes me think that there's a bast in every universe but cats just always have a goddess and her name is always bast yeah because like bast is also a goddess in sandman yes absolutely like in the pantheon of gods but also i'm thinking of other things like even i don't know there's a contemporary irish like ya series called the secrets of the immortal nicholas Fumel, which has different pantheons in it and bast is one of them like they go out of their way for representation of like Aztec gods and stuff, you know, and Celtic gods and stuff. But they all like they make sure that there's a bast there. <laughs> like a cat, I think, is easier for us to like comprehend, or at least like a human with the head of a cat, yeah. as is like most depictions of bast. Uh, than like Sobek, who's another Egyptian god, but like he is the head of a crocodile. Like that's terrifying. Um. Not really as relatable as, like, a domestic animal. Yeah, absolutely. What's something that made you laugh out loud in this book? I think it's probably the description of the wizard uh, near the start. Their method of finding a solution as far as the patrician could see was by creative hubbub. If the question was, what is the best spell for turning a book of poetry into a frog, then the one thing that they would not do was look in any book with a title like Major Amphibian Spells in a Literary Environment, a Comparison. (laughs) <laughs> that would somehow be cheating. They would argue about it instead, standing around a blackboard, seizing the chalk from one another and rubbing out bits of what the current chalk holder was writing before he'd finished the other end of the sentence. Somehow, though, it all seemed to work. And, like, if that is... Like, I, I can visualize the faculty of Unseen University doing that. My personal favorite was the bit... Uh, we finally hear the definition of the Chair of Indefinite Studies that... <laughs> Yeah, the, the whole point of like not having to be a part of things if they're not definite. And he's like, would we say this is definite trouble then? Well, I can't help if it was indefinite. Mm. What's something that made you think? It's something that Veninari says, 
And it's, I think it's worth noting that a veterinary himself is the one who says that. And who precisely defines the monstrousness of the monsters and the tyranny of the tyrants? Well, because, I mean, within the context of the Discworld, like, veterinary is, like, this sort of extreme leader of the city, and he has all the power, and, he, you know, he's involved in all the plots to assassinate him in some way or another. Except for, you know, like, the plots to assassinate him that actually work. <laughs> or... or or, you know, that are somewhat effective. But, like, by all accounts, he should be viewed as a monster. But, like, f from the narrative, we sh we see that he's not. Like, he's sympathetic to most yeah. people. He's my comfort character. But in terms of the real world, like, a lot of this, especially in a book about, like, how cruel and callous gods can be and, like, where the line of morality ends for divine beings, like, who defines what is culturally bad uh, and immoral, you know, is an interesting thing to, yeah. like... Because there's some things that are, like, you know, obviously bad, like rape and torture and killing children. But, like, societal norms, like, who decides that and, like, who we vilify and especially then who we decide is good as a society is really fascinating. The one that made me think was on page 145. It's the, the part with the Nutitif people and nearby tribe that wiped them out. So they were wiped out by a nearby tribe who knew that the lights had been a signal from the god Ukli to expand the hunting ground around a bit more. However, they were soon defeated by a tribe who knew that the lights were their ancestors who lived in the moon and were urging them to kill all non-believers in their goddess Galypso. Three years later, they in turn were killed by a rock falling from the sky as the result of a star exploding a billion years ago. What comes around goes around. If not examined too closely, it passes for justice. And this idea that, like, you know, if, to go back to Joseph Campbell and what we were talking about earlier, like, the idea that everything is chaos, right? But we as humans create stories around it to try to explain ourselves, to make sense of that chaos. And so, like, none of the things that were just described are actually part of a story. But if you wanted to put them in a story, it might be the story justice, right? That would be sort of the, like, narrative end to a story if it's a... If it's a a fairy tale or a fable like the last hero is supposed to be right but like logically we understand that there's nothing magical or supernatural about a star exploding a billion years ago this is just like the unfortunate thing but if you look at it in the right way it has resonance and meaning like and i think that goes back to like sagas and how like the correct way to create a saga which is what the the horde the Silver Horde are telling the, the storyteller. You know, like, this is how you do it, and, like, this is how we decide that these people are going to be heroes, you know? Right, Like, yeah. we just you just look at, like, whatever they do, and then you frame it in a certain way through the lens of story. Well, I think that's all we have. So, next episode, Disc the Discworld goes YA with Maurice and his educated rodents, plus... Later this week, you can hear a bonus episode with Matt from Lego More Pork. It's our very first bonus episode, Nigel. Woo! <laughs> I am excited. Where can people find you online and on their headphones, Nigel? You can find me online at, on Twitter at SpicyNigel, where I'm um, tweeting what I'm reading. The uh, Oh, I almost did a haiku. Things change. Everything is always ending. The planet is dying. I have a vape now. Yeah, I feel and that then so, dunking I on so Andrew much. Tate.
Yes. I mean, naturally. Oh, yeah. And the new tattoos I got. And then my shows, Hyperfixations, Among the Stacks, they're wherever podcasts be. Really excited to continue listening to Among the Stacks. You can find me on Twitter at the Paradox, where I recently just tweeted, if I could go back in time and ask James Whale the hard-hitting questions about his groundbreaking contributions to film, my first would be, why did you change Frankenstein's first name to Henry? Classic. Mm, yeah. And then I uh, retweeted someone who asked, could a bear beat John Wick? And my response to that is, we would never know because they would team up. I stand by that. Yes. We would never know. John Wick would Cocaine never. Cocaine bear. I'm yeah. John Wick. <laughs> you can also find me on my other podcast, Monkey Off My Backlog. Um, as of when this episode will come out, we just released our very first Momble Reading Challenge 2023 episode. So you can go over there and hear our friend Ryan and Sam and I talk about the books we read for January. You can find this podcast on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. Please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Read us out, Nigel. And Leonard began the penance for his hubris. This was much approved of by the Ankh-Morpork priesthood. It was definitely the sort of thing to encourage piety. Lord Veterinary was therefore surprised when he received an urgent message three weeks after the events recounted, and forced his way through the mob to the Temple of Small Gods. What's going on, he demanded of the priests peering around the door. This is blasphemy, said Hunan Ridcully. Why? What has he painted? It's not what he's painted, my lord. What he's painted is... is amazing. And he's finished it. Up on the mountain, as the blizzards closed in, there was a red glow in the snow... It was there all winter, and when the spring gales blew, the rubies glittered in the sunshine. No one remembers the singer. The song remains. The end.